In Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, again, this beautiful day that you've given to us. We thank you, Lord, that today the sun shines on us, not just the round ball of fire in the sky, but the sun, your sun, shines his, his face upon us, his glory upon us, his, his pleasure upon us today. And Father, as we learn how to bask in that sunlight, as we learn how to bask and rest and be refreshed and strengthened, Father, in the, in, the, in the glory that shines down upon us and out of us by your Spirit, Lord. We pray as we open the Word of God together today that this anointing of your Spirit that's upon this Word that would draw from my heart, Father, just exactly the words to be said and that you would anoint them and deposit them in the hearts of everyone this morning. Father, that we not leave here today with more information because we all basically know this information, but we leave here today with a better revelation of how much you love us. Your word says that there are things that are in your heart that our eyes have not yet seen, that our ears have not yet heard, nor has it entered into our hearts all that you have prepared for those who love you. Well, that's us, Father. We're here today because we love you. But your spirit's been given to us to search the depths of your heart and reveal those secrets of your heart for what you have for us today. And the greatest thing you have for us today is your love for us. And so we ask you, Father, to bypass our minds, bypass our religious traditions, bypass our life experiences, and touch the areas of our heart that need to be touched today by your Spirit, that we may leave here changed, charged, and infused with the love and the power and the life of God inside of us. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Praise God. Well, as the sign behind tells me, we're still looking at the, we're still looking at the subject that God loves you. Most famous scripture in the Bible is John chapter 3, verse 16, which says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And as we began this series, we emphasized the third word in that verse, so, because that word tells us that this verse is not just telling a fact that God loves us. And that's where most of us are, I think. Most of us believe that God loves us. It's information. It's a fact. And if I were asked for a show of hands in here today, how many of you, how many of you believe that God loves you? I've, virtually everyone would raise their hand. But what changes you is that little two-letter word, so, because it's not the fact that God loves you. It's how much God loves you that changes us. It's how much, and we sang songs about it today, how much God loves us. And He proved His love. He, he demonstrated His love towards us by giving to us His only begotten Son. And everything that we're going to study about the love of God is based on this principle, on this idea, on this revelation that God loved you so much that He did something for us. And we're going to see as we get into Romans 5, He did it while we were still His enemies. He did it while we were still ungodly. So He didn't love us because of anything that was lovable about us, other than that's just His nature. And then we looked at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, which tells us where we are. For we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Now this is written by the Apostle John. And we talked about him in the very first segment we did on this. We did a comparison of the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter. Peter was the bold, <clears throat> bold one. He was confident in his relationship with Christ. He was confident in his love for Christ. He was confident in his commitment to Christ. So much so that when Jesus came to wash his feet, Peter had the audacity to say, you shouldn't be washing my feet, I should be washing yours. He had the audacity to say, no, Lord, you shouldn't do this. To tell the Lord not to do something. So he had so much confidence, but his confidence was as in him. And then Jesus tells him a little later on, even though Peter was so bold, he said, I will die for you. He said, no, Peter, before the cock crows, before the sun comes up, you're going to have denied me three times. So Peter's faith failed because his faith was in himself. John, the other hand, the apostle John, refers to himself as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. His, his self-image was based on how much Jesus loved him, not on his love for Jesus. And yet he loved Jesus probably more than anybody because his love for Jesus was a response to the revelation of how much Jesus loved him. And when Jesus was being executed and crucified on that cross, John was the only one of the disciples that was there. And Jesus trusted his mother to him. Why? Because of his revelation of how much Jesus loves him. And he's the one that wrote this verse. In fact, he's run the, wrote the first verse we read. 
And he says, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We said there's a difference between knowing and believing that love. As I said a few minutes earlier, if I asked for a show of hands, how many believe that God loves you? Almost all of us would raise our hands. But he's talking about something that's beyond believing it, it's knowing it. And that word know in Greek means to know by intimate experience. To know by intimate experience. And when you know that love, when that love drops from knowledge in your head to a revelation in your heart, it changes you. It changes you. And then he says, because God is love. We talked about that. God is love. He's not full of love. It's not, one of, it's not his major characteristic. It's the essence of who he is, which means in order for him to stop loving us, he has to stop being who he is. And the Bible tells us in a number of places, God cannot change. And so therefore, his love for you is as constant as the sun that shines. And we have some days where we can see the sun shining and other days where we can't see the sun shining, but it's still shining whether we can see it or not. And so on the days when we don't see that ball of red ball up in the sky, we don't get afraid and discouraged and say, my goodness, the sun didn't come out today. We have faith enough to believe it's out even when we can't see it. And we need to come that way with the love of God, to come to that place with the love of God. So we began to look at that, and we began to look at there's, there, there's some things that that revelation changes in our life. And we looked at the first one, it changes is just the, we're commanded to love one another. And where we struggle so much is we're trying to love one another with the love that Christ has for us, but we give out, often out of, a, out of a, 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 a lack of what we've received ourselves. We saw the principle in Matthew 10, verse 8, where Jesus is sending his disciples out, and he said, freely you have received, freely give. So we've learned from that you can't give something you haven't received, and the way you receive it is the way you'll give it. And so we've got many people out there trying to give the love of God away as a hard thing. So they're scaring people. And so scaring people doesn't draw many people. It's the goodness of God that draws to repentance. And I'm not saying they're wrong because they have some success. But then what, what, what are the Christians, you know, what, what do these Christians become? They become fearful, legalistic Christians. And it's not my purpose to criticize them because in many cases they're doing a better job than we are. But that's what we looked at. Love. We're commanded to love one another, but we can only really do that to the extent that we receive that love. In fact, if we went on, and we will in a minute, <clears throat> there's a verse that says that, you can't, that, that the love we have for God is a response to the love we have for us. So your love and commitment to God that you have right now is a direct indication of what kind of love you've received from Him and how much of you've received. It's not that He hasn't given it to you, it's what we've received. Because God's not holding anything back. We'll see a verse in a few weeks where God's not holding anything back. It'll change your prayer life when you get understand God is not... You, when we go to God in prayer, when we ask God for things, especially for ourselves, He's not then going to decide whether to give it to you or not based on how you prayed or how you lived your life this week because the Bible teaches us on the covenant we have with God, He's already given everything before you were born. He's put it on the table. It's out there. It's kind of like the difference between going to a buffet... I better be careful how much I talk about this on a Sunday morning. <laughs> going to a buffet where you get the... It's all out on the table. You go down the line. There's, uh, what do they call them? Cafeterias where you go down the line. You say, I want some of this. I want some... And they have it sitting there. You can see it. And then they put it on your plate. But it's already there. As opposed to going to a restaurant with a menu where it's not out there. You ask and you trust that they're going to give you what you have. And sometimes they come back and say, Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're out of that. And you're disappointed and you say, well, i got to have something else. And that's the image we have of God is that it's like a restaurant where we go and ask him off the menu and this is the menu. And then he goes to the, the waiter goes in the kitchen and find out whether the chef still has enough left over for you. But the Bible teaches us everything God's going to bless you with, he's already blessed you with. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, and in the Greek, it's a perfect tense, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when he gave Christ to you, he gave everything he had. So we don't have to talk God into doing anything for us. Say, well, how come I don't have it? God has to talk us into believing he's given it to us enough so that we're able to receive it. And part of that has to do with recognizing how much God loves us. Because instinctively we know that we don't deserve anything from good that's from God. So it comes from understanding His love for us which opens us up to receive things we know we don't deserve. 
Amen? You with me? Okay. All right. So, and that leads right into the next two things. We also looked that faith, Galatians 5, 6 says, faith works by love. So faith works by knowing how much God loves you because it's easier to receive from somebody and trust somebody that you know loves you and isn't sitting up in heaven with a whole list of grievances against you waiting for you to get your life straightened out before they bless you or take care of you. In the same way we looked at prayer. Prayer is based on the, the, the effectiveness of prayer comes from our confidence in God and that's that foundation of that confidence in God is that how, the revelation of how much he loves us. And then we finish by looking at that word we all love so much, obedience. And we're supposed to obey Him. But it's a whole lot easier to obey somebody you know loves you and you can trust yourself to them. The reason that many of us have not fully surrendered our lives to Him is we don't really trust Him. And the reason we don't trust Him is we really don't know how much He loves us. If you could see how much God loves you, you would surrender everything to Him. You would jump in His arms Years ago when our, our granddaughter, our second oldest granddaughter, she's 12, it could be 13 uh, this year, uh, it's hard to believe. Um, when, when, when she was young, she would stand up on the, on the arms of the couch, and as you walk by, she'd just jump at you. Not ready or not, here I come, she'd just jump at you. And, and if you saw her coming, you'd catch her. If you didn't see her coming, well... <clears throat> <clears throat> and the point is, she trusted me that I would be aware of her and that I would catch her. So she jumped first because she had confidence in her papa. And so the reason we don't jump into his arms is because we really don't have confidence that he cares enough about us to catch us every time. And most of that is because we know ourselves too well. Well, why would he catch me? Why would, why, why would, he, why would he catch me? I know myself too well. Because God is love. There's nothing you can do to cause God to love you more. And there's nothing you can do that would cause God to love you less. Because God is love. In order for Him to love you more or less, He has to change. And I am the Lord, Malachi says, that changes not. Because of that, He said, I didn't destroy Ephraim. Because I love for Ephraim, which represents Israel, didn't change. I could have destroyed them. I wanted this, but I couldn't because I love them. Okay. All right. Now we're going to look at a new subject today. It's also one of the things that, that, again, we're still looking. We're still in the introduction of the series. We're looking at the areas of our walk with God that the lack of knowing His love for us affects. And these are areas where most of us struggle to one degree or another. And this is a big one today. This is a big one today. So we're going to go, if we're in 1 John chapter 4, let's look at verse 17. 1 John 4, 17. See if they can get it up there. There it is. Love has been perfected. That, don't get hung up on the word perfected. That means completed or matured, come to its fullness. Love has come to its fullness among this, us in this that we so that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. That word boldness means openness, not holding anything back. Kind of like they were in the Garden of Eden at the end of chapter 2 of Genesis. It says, and they were both naked and were not ashamed. They were both bold. They were open before God. They weren't hiding anything before God. The word boldness also means to say whatever's on your mind. Now, some of you are very bold in your personality, and you're known for saying whatever's on your mind, and some of you are not quite so bold. And what this is saying is we, we are to have love has been matured among us, fulfilled among us, into, so, that, so that we may have boldness, confidence in the day of judgment when we stand before God. Well, in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. I, oh, I would love to go off on this this morning, but we would never get to this. Do you know what that's saying? That when you're born again, it's saying that God put His nature in you. That's what it means to be born again. God takes your old ungodly nature out and he puts his godly nature in you that's how you become his child because he puts his nature in you Peter says in 2nd Peter we have been given the divine nature the nature of God Paul in all of his most of his letters spends the first half of the letter talking about who we are in Christ what God has put in us and then the rest of the letter says now act like who you are 
And most of us don't know who we are in Christ, so we're trying to act like we're trying to become somebody by how we act instead of realizing this is who He's made me to be, so all I've got to do is act like who I am. In Ephesians 4, he says, put, therefore put on the, take off the old man and put on the new man. Colossians says the same thing. You can't put on something you don't have. This is a gray pinstripe suit. The only reason I can put it on this morning is I have a gray pinstripe suit. So the only reason you can put Christ on is because you have him inside of you. He, you, you and he have the same. That's why you're brothers. He's your brother. We're going to look at that. He's your brother. Jesus is your brother. Hebrews 2 says, Therefore he's not ashamed to be called your brother. He's not ashamed to be called your brother. Sometimes we're ashamed to be called his brother, but he's not ashamed. Why? And in the day of judgment, when the veils pull back, and our spiritual eyes are open to the fullness, you're going to discover that as he is, so are you in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. He's talking about mature love. There is no fear in love. So when you're in that love that God has for you, you cannot fear. Because perfect love, matured love, the fulfilled... Rev- the, what he's saying here is, when you have the full revelation of how much God loves you, it casts out fear. Because fear and love cannot abide together. Just like light and darkness cannot abide together. In the wintertime, in the afternoon, when it's dark outside and I come through here, there's a walk-in button here and here and in the back. When I push that button, the lights come on, and when the lights come on, the darkness leaves. I don't have to push a dark button to turn the dark off and then push a light button to turn the light on. You don't need a dark button because when the light comes on, the darkness leaves and when the, dark, when the light goes off, the darkness comes back. When the love of God comes on, when the light dawns on you of the love of God for you, the fear leaves. The fear leaves. The fear leaves. Because fear involves torment. If you've ever been gripped in fear, you know that verse. It involves torment. What I shared with you last week about what the doctors found in my body, when I came out of that office and the doctor said I want to do a biopsy, I was gripped with fear. You could feel it come on you. And that's when the Spirit of God spoke to me and says, that's your enemy. Cancer's not your enemy. Fear is your enemy. And you can overcome it. You can overcome it. And see, fortunately, I knew these verses. So instead of focusing on fear, because you know that we learned in Renewing the Mind, the more you focus on something, the bigger it gets in your mind. So don't, that's why the devil wants you to focus on everything you're doing wrong, because the more you look at what you're doing wrong, or why he wants you looking at your symptoms and focusing on your symptoms and talking about your symptoms... It's amazing. Sometimes you get Christians together that are going through challenges in their life, physical challenges, and it sounds like an organ recital. And we've got to really be careful as we get older. Because the world's concept, as you get older, you ought to expect aches and pains. You ought to expect arthritis. You ought to expect this to go wrong. You ought to expect this to happen. You ought to, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to. Where does it say that in the Bible? And so we, we talk to each other. Oh, I'm just getting old. It's getting hard to get up in the morning. Oh, I get this aches and pains. Getting up. And the more we talk about those things, then we've got two of us coming together in agreement. And the Bible says, if two or more of you agree on anything on earth, it shall be done for you. We need to be much more careful about what we say. Not as some legalistic thing we're afraid of, but understanding the power of your words. Your words produce faith. Faith comes by hearing. Either faith in what God says, or faith in what the world says and the devil says. You get to choose it, and you release it with your mouth. We'll get there down the road too. Fear involves... Put it back up. Fear involves torment. And the ultimate torment is the fear of judgment. Oh my gosh, God's angry at me. Everybody else is angry at me. 
But he who fears, look at this, he who fears has not been made perfect. That just means complete in love. We're going to talk about fear today. We're going to talk about fear because I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. If there is fear in your life, that's a symptom that you've not yet been made complete in God's love for you. We're not talking about your love for Him. It's the revelation of His love for you. And understand this. The whole purpose of this series is not to condemn any of us. It's it's to go for a a spiritual checkup and find out where we are because if we think we're somewhere, then we're not going to be... It's like when Jesus told the Pharisees, you know, I didn't come. A physician can only heal those that are sick. And, and he was telling the Pharisees, because they thought they were righteous, he couldn't do anything for them. The only people he could do anything for were those that knew they needed a Savior. And so, as long as we think, look, you know, I know God loves me, then you've closed the door to a further revelation of that love for you. And so we're looking at these indications, we're also looking at areas in our life where many of us struggle, and the reason we're struggling, the foundation of why we're struggling, is we've not yet had this revelation of how much God loves us. So if you deal with fear, they say, well, fear is normal, fear is natural. Yes, fear is natural in that it comes at you, but to live in fear is not natural. Oh, I'll get off on this, but I can't. (laughs) The world will tell you, the world's way of thinking, and many Christians will tell you, well, look, we're only human. Have, have you heard that? Yeah. Well, I understand, but, but I'm struggling. But we're, actually, we're only human. And I won't ask if you've ever said that. We're only human. Well, the Bible's answer to that is you need to get saved. If you're only human, you need to get saved. Because if you're saved, you're no longer human. Oh, you better explain that, Pastor. Okay. Because we just talked about when you receive Christ, God takes your old nature out and He puts a brand new nature in you, a brand new spirit in you. That spirit's born of Him. Everything born out of God has God's nature in it, just as everything born out of our flesh. Our children have our nature and tendencies in it. It's our DNA. Anita's and my DNA is in them. So when they start talking like us, when they start looking like us, that's not shocking because they have our nature in their body. But you are not your body. That's the house you live in. The Bible teaches us that we are a spirit. That's who you are. That you have a soul, which is your personality, your mind, your will, and your emotions, and the two of those live in your body. So who you really are is a spirit being on the inside of you. And when you come to Christ, when you receive Christ, God takes that old spirit out of you and births in you His own spirit, born out of Him, which contains His nature. So if you have God's nature in you, you're no longer purely human. You're no longer just a man. Paul tells the church at Corinth, you're carnal, you're not mere, you're acting like mere men. So if he's correcting them and disciplining them by saying, look, you're acting like mere men, then we're not supposed to act like mere men and women. But that's how we think of ourselves because we spend most of our time, if not all of our time, thinking of ourselves in this realm and that's all we expect. Well, you know, we, we're going to act just like everybody else. We're going to get old just like... We do get older. I look at pictures of me when I'm 20, I don't look the same way. But I feel stronger than I did when I was 20. I'm more alive now than when I was 20 because I didn't have God living in me when I was 20. I was operating on my strength. Now I'm operating with His life in me. And the older I get, the more life I feel inside of me. But isn't that what 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 says? For though the outward man's getting older, the new man's getting newer day by day. I'm newer on the inside today than I was last Sunday. I'm stronger on the inside. I got more life in me today than I did last Sunday because I'm stirring it up. So don't think of yourself as a mere man, a mere woman. That's the house you live in. We live in a, you know, what is it, gray, whatever it is. It's a gray... Cape House. I don't walk around saying, that's who I am. I'm a gray Cape House. That's what I am. No, that's where I go home. That's what I live in. That's not who I am. This is critical. Oh, I'll be careful. I'm John, you're going to go off on this, I can tell, but I'm not gonna, I can't. That's not who you are. I wake up every morning and I say, I am a new creature in Christ. That's who I am. I look in that mirror and says, what you're seeing back is not who you are. 
You are a new creature in Christ. God lives in you. You are one-third wall-to-wall God. And, and your spirit is one-third of God inside of you. And I'm filled with the Spirit of God. The life of God is in me. That's what the Bible says. We just didn't agree with it. Oh boy, how did I get off on that? Okay. He who fears. So what we're looking at is if... So fear comes from the outside for a Christian. Second to me, seven, it says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. It's not part of your spiritual DNA. God's not given you a spirit that has fear in it. So it's got to come from the outside, which means you don't have to let it in. You don't have to let it in. I've shared with you last week some of the things that I was struggling with in fear. And one of the verses I've been meditating on is in Philippians 4, which says, Be anxious for nothing. And I've talked to you about traffic jams getting anxious. Well, I had a, an attack come against my body this week, not regard the one I shared last week. And it's like, and I could fear that fear trying to come back on me. And I said, No, I've made a decision to obey the Word of God. I will be anxious for nothing. And it lifted right off of me. The fear just lifted right off of me. I said, Woo! Woo! Fear has no dominion over me. Sin has no dominion over us because we're not under the law, we're under grace. We've got to start act exercising that in our life with our mouth. Oh boy, I'm going to get off on sidetracks today, I can tell. Okay, he who fears... So the purpose of looking at this now is if, 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 if I wrestle with fear, then that tells me I've not yet had the full revelation. I'm not walking in that revelation of God's love for me. So we're going to look at four fears this morning that Christians tend to deal with. Four fears. Proverbs 29, verse 25. This is one of the biggies. And this is one I'd struggle with in the past and still have to deal with sometimes. The fear of man brings a snare. Now the word snare, it means a subtle trap. The word snare means a subtle trap. It has bait in it. And it used to actually, what it used to apply in the, in, in the, the word in the, in the New Testament in Greek implies, you know, if you see how they catch an animal by setting a box up with a stick here, and there's a string on the stick, and they put some meat in there, and when the rabbit or whatever they're trying to catch, the chipmunk, gets in there and starts eating the bait, you pull the, you pull the stick out and it comes out and traps them. That's what a snare is. So it doesn't look like a trap. There's something attractive to it. John Bevere years ago wrote a book called The Bait of Satan. And it's based on this principle of what that trap was like. There's something that draws us in. And when we get drawn in, the next thing you know, we're snare, ensnared by it. And it's the fear of man is one of those things. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. So apparently there's a contrast here between the fear of man and trusting in the Lord. And this is what we're going to look at. The fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. What is the fear of man? Well, it's the fear of what men can do to us. And by man, it just means anybody. The apostle Peter, we just talked about him. The man walked on water. The man to whom the Father gave a revelation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. The man who said, I'm willing to die for you. When that young, it was so significant. It was a young servant girl that said to him, aren't you one of his disciples? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't even know who he is. He was afraid of her. He was afraid of her. So how can we, what does it mean to be afraid of man? What's the fear of man? See, some of you are physically strong and say, I'm not afraid of anybody. Until your wife starts telling you things. Fear isn't based on physical strength. It can be. Fear is always because there's something they can do to me that's going to hurt me or injure me somehow. And in most cases, it has, has to do with approval or disapproval. We're going to see in a minute, God made man to need approval. So if you're out there trying to overcome your dependency upon man by saying, I don't need anybody, that's unbiblical. God made us to need one another. God made us to need approval. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay. 
So it's what others think of us that control us. One of the things God opened my eyes to a year ago, when we were teaching on the, we were talking about uh, putting God first, and, and earlier this year and then last year, uh, when I was meditating on, on the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God before me. And the Lord spoke to me, he says, you have other gods in your life. And of course, I'm thinking of, I don't have anything on my dashboard, I don't have anything in, you know, on my backyard in a half a bathtub, I don't have any of those things. I, I, you know, what do you mean? He says, fear. Fear of what men think of you. He says, there have been times I've wanted you to do something and you wouldn't do it because you were afraid of what people would think. Every time we see somebody and we just know inside of us, you know what, I ought to talk to them about Jesus and we hold back, that's the fear of man. Well, what are they going to think of me? They may not like me. They may reject me. They may think I'm one of those crazy Christians. They might think something about me. Some of you are raised in families, and I was to some degree, where, where the family was governed by fear where you were disciplined by fear and controlled by fear. You know, I don't, you know if you don't do this, we don't love you, or, or whatever it is. This is going to happen to you. And, and this has gotten into religion in the church. If, and this is what's happened when so many people struggle with one of the things we'll talk about, is then we become afraid of God because we pass that on. Well, I guess if I don't do everything right, my parents are going to be mad at me. Well, maybe God's mad at me if I don't do everything right. The fear of man. The fear of man is one of the most common fears that Christians deal with. And it's very subtle. You may not even know you're being affected by it. But if anything restricts God's being able to move in your life, one of the reasons often we have trouble even hearing the voice of the Spirit of God is because we're afraid of what He's going to ask of us that we won't want to do. And quiet in here, in this Presbyterian church. <laughs> okay. So let's look at some scriptures and kind of make you feel a little better here. John chapter 5. John's been talking here, or Jesus has been talking to some Pharisees. And he tells them earlier on, you know, you, you, you've been, said you've been searching the Scriptures, but you don't find me in there because you don't, the reason you don't find me in there is because you don't believe my Father. And then he says, here's why. How can you believe, talking about believing on Him, how can you believe who receive your honor from one another and don't seek the honor that comes from the only God? So he's saying, but the Pharisees, the honor they were seeking, and honor is approval, honor is acceptance, honor is recognition. You're seeking, the reason you can't believe in me is because the honor that you're seeking, you're seeking from one another. Notice it affects your faith. The fear of man affects your faith. It's very hard to believe God and trust God because when you fear man, you've submitted yourself to them. You've submitted your identity You've submitted your future. You've submitted, your, 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 you've submitted yourself to them. In, in Romans chapter 6, verse 16, Paul says, says, Be careful, having talked about how we're free from sin. We have dominion over sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. He said, Therefore, be careful. Don't submit yourself again unto unrighteousness because don't you understand to whom you submit yourself you become a slave to that person and when you become a, when you fear what man thinks of you you submitted yourself to serve them getting even quieter in here remember this is not to condemn us because I'm sharing for you things I've learned in my own life because this has been a fear that's dominated me in the past I know there are things that God's wanted me to do here that I either hesitated or put off because, well, all right, what are people going to think? That's how powerful, not everything, but there have been things I know that I, have, I haven't had, and therefore I've not been fully open to hear what God has to say to me. I can't do that as a leader. So God's been dealing with me to set me free from this. Not condemn me, not beat me up. So I'm sharing that with you, my, my issue, so that you understand I'm not sharing this with you sitting here as a judge over you, this is the, something I'm getting free of, but the good news is God will set you free if you'll admit it. If you don't admit it, He can't set you free. And the reason we don't admit it is pride, because we're afraid of what God thinks of us or man thinks of us. There's some people that won't come forward in the healing line because of what people are going to think of them. Well, can they heal you? Then come to the one that can, not me, but God. Okay. Look at this. How can you believe? He's talking about believing in Him. 
who receive honor from one another. But you do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Let's go to John chapter 12. He says the same thing here in a little different way. He's talking here about things Isaiah had prophesied. In Isaiah, earlier on, he's talking about Isaiah prophesied that, that he said that, that they're going to be people that they're going to, I'm going to reveal myself to them, but they're not going to see. I'm going to speak to them, but they're not going to hear. Because their hearts are hardened, and because their hearts are hardened, I can't heal them or save them or deliver them. And, and it, then he goes on and says, uh, verse 42, Nevertheless, listen to this, even among the rulers, we're talking about in the synagogue, even among the rulers, many believed in him. John's writing this about Jesus. So among the Pharisees and Sadducees, there were many who believed in him. We know of some. We've got Nicodemus. We've got Joseph of Arimathea who bought the tomb that he was laid in. But when did Nicodemus come and talk to Jesus? At night. That's why he's known at Nick at night. Ah, yeah. oh, it's too old. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed by that. I didn't originate that. It's just old, but I can't. I couldn't resist it. We need a little levity in here right now. He was afraid to come to him in the daytime. Many of the rulers who knew scriptures believed on him, but look, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. This applies to many Christians today. We believe in him, but we're afraid to confess him in the public, in the world, at work. I'll never forget the first time after I'd gotten saved and uh, I bought a Bible and it was a big one. And I'm taking public transportation from where we lived into my law office in, in, in Boston. And I'm riding on a bus coming into Harvard Square and now I've got to decide if I'm going to read my Bible or not. Open my Bible with all these other people around me. And I remember sweating. It's like, and I, all right, you're either going to do this or you're not. So I closed my eyes and opened my Bible. And you know what? Nobody was even looking at me. Think about this. We become so self-conscious. We become, listen to what I'm saying, self-conscious. Self-conscious. Our focus is on what are they going to think of me. And that's what got Adam and Eve in trouble and took all the rest of us with us. It was about them. He's keeping something back from you. You need to take care of yourself. You need to watch out for yourself. You need to provide for yourself. God's not going to do that. You can't trust Him. You better take your life into your hands. So, we're going to see fear has at its root, I told you it's going to get better, selfishness. Fear is based on what's going to happen to me. Even if it's something that's happening to somebody you care about, it's how's that going to affect me. Because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid that even though they believed in who he was, if they said something, the Pharisees, the ruling authorities, would kick them out of the synagogue. You say, well, what kind of issue is that? They just go down the road to another synagogue. No, if you were, if you were excommunicated from a synagogue, you didn't go into another one. That was the whole cultural basis of your life. Everything was operated around the synagogue. It's not like, here, well, I don't like Pastor John saying today, I'm going to go down the road to somebody else's church. It wasn't like that. It was like saying you were kicked out of the body of Christ. To them, it was everything to them. Lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Verse 43, look at this. Why? For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. What held them in to, not be, to be afraid to confess Christ, even though they believed in Him, was because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They chose the praise of men 
over the praise of God. Now, I'm not telling you this to beat you up or me up because I have good news for you. There's something in here I'd never seen before until lately. I always used to read this. That means they weren't strong enough to suck it up and say, okay, these guys aren't going to like me, therefore it's going to be okay, and I'm just going to live without out their praise at all. They chose, they loved, they sought after the praise of men more than the praise of God. I'm going to tell you something I hadn't heard before until recently, and it's really opening my eyes to this. God made you to need praise. God made you to need praise coming to you. See, we have this image that if I'm really a mature Christian, I don't need praise. God's praised. He's got angels around Him. All their whole job for all of eternity say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is filled with His glory. Yeah, but I'm not God, so I don't... So it's not that God needs praise. That's part of who He is, is He's praised. And God's made you in His image and me in His image. It's in our nature to need praise. The problem is we seek it from the wrong source. We seek it from the wrong source. And the reason in many cases we seek it from the wrong source is we don't know that God will praise you. Do you understand God praises you? Now, not if you're doing something wrong, but God's proud of you. Again, I'll go back to something I shared last week. Part of the difficulty is believing that is we know ourselves. I, I, I know me. I know I'm far from perfect. I know I don't do everything I'm supposed to do just the way I'm supposed to do it, and I know sometimes my intentions, they start out good, but they get distracted, and I'm just, you know, I'm on the, like, like you are. We're on a journey growing through this. But I think sometimes we look, think God is looking at us, expecting us to be perfect the way He is. And the Bible refers to us as His children. And so when you, we talked about... Uh, uh, little Carlos, Carlos Rojas, last week, that as he was trying to take his first steps, how he was, you know, his legs were wobbly like this, and he was like, he talked about our daughter when she was learning to walk. You know, and she, was, she, she didn't make it the first time. She got out there and she fell right down. And I went over and I, I picked her up, and I didn't chastise her for not making it. I was proud of her. I was proud of her. And when you take even a little step of faith... When you begin to step out, whether it's in faith or whatever it is, when you endeavor out of your heart to do what you know is pleasing to God, He's proud of you. He turns to the angels. You see that? Do you see what Ron did? See, we don't think of God in these terms. Because we religiously think of God as sitting in heaven, just kind of looking down and says, I wonder what they're going to do wrong today. Boy, they should know better by now. They've been coming to Faith Christian Center for 20 years. They ought to do better than that. Look at that. They love the praise of men. It doesn't stop there. See, that's how I used to read it. Well, they love the praise of men, and they shouldn't love the praise of men. No. They chose the praise of men instead of the praise of God. That means if that's a legitimate alternative, then there must be a praise that comes from God. We saw in verse in chapter 5 that we, they receive honor from men, not from God. Do you know God will honor you? God will honor me? i got something even better to tell you. Go with me to Zephaniah. Zephah who? <laughs> Where'd you pull that one out, Pastor? It's right before Haggai. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's on 12, page 1238. No, we're going to put it up there. This is in the middle of a prophecy about the Messiah coming. So this is talking about the church. And the church is you and me. So this is the Spirit of God through the prophet Zephaniah prophesying what it was going to be like in the church. The Lord your God in your midst. Jesus said, Were two or more of you gathered in your, my name, there am I in your midst. 
God is in our midst. He's in you. He's in me. The Lord your God in the midst, the mighty one, will save. So talk about those that are saved. Look at this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God is rejoicing over you with gladness. That's got to sink in. He will quiet you, what? With His love. Be still and know that I am God. And the God that I am loves you. He will rejoice over you with singing. God sings songs about you. Isn't that what it says? Oh, but that's for a future time. No, no, I'm the Lord your God in your midst. He's here in our midst. The mighty one who will save. He's brought salvation through Christ. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Because we think He rejoices over us or He's angry at us because of, of how we act. And we know ourselves. But He didn't rejoice over you because He rejoices over you because he, you're His. You ever been to a Little League baseball game? Or soccer game? See the parents? Little Johnny just swung at the first three pitches that were in the dirt. That's my boy. That's my boy. He got his uniform on straight today. He got the shoes on the right feet and the helmet on the right place. He may have fallen down on those first two swings, but, and he may have missed them all, but that's my boy. Right? If you've ever been a little league coach, you know what that's like. Or a coach young kids. Why? That's the pride of a father. That's the pride of a father who loves his child and is proud of him just because, listen to this, just because they're his. Just because they're his. Does that mean they're blind to their weaknesses? Well, for a lot of parents today it does. But they still love them. They're still proud of them. God looks down at you because you're here today. I drove, we drove past garage, uh, yard sales and car washes and other things going on today of people that should have been somewhere like this today. And they weren't, but you're here. And God says, they showed up for the game. They may be sleeping on the, in the bench, but they slowed up, showed up for the game. <laughs> Some of you, it was a struggle to get here, especially if you got kids. And you're going out the door, and now you've got to change the dirty diaper. <laughs> I remember those days. But you're here. We've got to renew our mind. God, you're God's child. You're God's child. Oh, boy. He rejoices over you with singing. Oh, my. I asked the Lord one time, give me something in the New Testament. And he took me to, we're not going to turn there, Luke 15, 10, where it says the angels, the angels rejoice over everyone that gets saved. And then it goes right into that in the story of the prodigal son. What happened when the son came home? The father threw a party for him. And he wasn't dressed for it. He was still in the dirt and the slop from the pigs when he came home. But what did the father do? He threw a party for his prodigal son because he was his son. And he came home. God sings over you. He rejoices over you. So I don't need to get praise from men. I've got the praise of my Father. Does that mean I do everything right? And does that mean if I do something wrong that He's proud of what I did wrong? No, but He's still proud of me. He's proud of me. The next fear is the fear of death. No, no, I'm going to get to that one later. Probably not today. The fear of failure. This is related to the fear of man. Because the fear of failure is what does it mean about me? And that freezes people. It freezes people. 
Years ago when we were working in some other ministry, not a, not a Christian ministry, although it was Christian elements to it, we were being trained by the leader of the organization. And I was going through the exercise, and he looked at me and says, John, you're one of the most competitive people I've ever met. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. I don't feel a competitive bone in my body. He said, that's exactly what I mean. I said, what do you mean? He says, you're so competitive, you won't try if you're not convinced you're going to win. Oh. And what's that rooted in? The fear of failure. The fear of failure. And the fear of failure is rooted in, what are others going to think of me if I fail? What's God going to think of me if I fail? What am I going to think of me if I fail? And of course, it's all focused on me. What does it mean about, about me? I'll give you this distinction that's very important to keep in mind. Almost everybody that's done anything great from God has failed along the way. If you're not willing to risk failure, you will never succeed. Because the safest place is right where you are. If I were to take all of you up on a 10-foot pole and tell you, I want to teach you how to walk on this tightrope across to the pole that's over there, that's 20 feet away, most of us would cling to that first pole because we're afraid of making a mistake. But if I drop that pole down to three inches off the ground, now you're going to try it. Because if you fall, it's not going to get hurt. Let's go to Ephesians, excuse me, let's go, excuse me, let's go to um, Hebrews chapter 4. The fear of failure applies in praying. Oh, I didn't finish my point. A failure, failing at something, is an event. Being a failure is a destination. There's a huge difference between failing at something and being a failure. And that's part of where we mix it up. We've tied our identity to our performance. So if I step out and it doesn't work and I fail, that means I'm a failure. No, it doesn't. The only way you fail is if you don't try or you quit. Because you're a child of God. You're a child of God. If I fail, it doesn't mean anything about me. It just means that I've tried and I've learned something else. Thomas Edison when he invented the incandescent light bulb, or discovered the incandescent light bulb, he knew that if he took two electrodes and he put some kind of material between them, because of the electricity flowing through it, the, the resistance would cause it to grow. Glow, it's not glow, grow. Not grow, glow. And the only way, he, you know, he couldn't read a book or go online and Google it, so the only way he could find out what was going to be the perfect element is to try at them. And I've forgotten, some of you may know better than I, if I recall correctly, he tried over 4,000 different elements. You could get discouraged after 3,500. <laughs> Most of it would get discouraged after three or 500. But his attitude was, uh, was not, I failed at this, I discovered another one that didn't work. That's without God. That's without God. Grace is God's love poured out on us. And when you, revel, when you understand He loves you, whether you slip or not, it's like having that safety net under the tightrope. Now you can venture out, because if I slip and fall, the love of God is there to catch me. Hebrews chapter 4. It's in the New Testament, John. One of my favorite verses. Verse 9 and 10 says, We see Jesus who was made a little... Whoops, that's two. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. He who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works as God did. So our walk with Christ by resting in his love for us is to rest and not be anxious. So I can rest, and when you're at rest in your, God's love for you, you're not likely to make as many mistakes either. Because you know He's there. He's going to love you whether you make a mistake or not. He's going to love you whether you slip off the tightrope or not. In fact, I venture to say all of us have slipped. 
somewhere in here. And the reason you're still here today is because God still loved you. He helped pick you back up again, dust you off, and set you back on your walk with Him again. Let's go down to verse now, um, verse 14. In the meantime, he talks about Christ as our high priest. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. A priest represents you before God and God to you. So seeing we have such a high priest, someone that represents our case before God, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So that's a double negative, which basically means he can sympathize who was in all point tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the reason he's sensitive to our... Notice what he's talking about. Who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We're talking about your weaknesses. We're talking about failure here. So when you're weak, when you slip, when you fall, when you fail, he can understand that. Now, he never failed, but he understood what it was like to deal with weaknesses. Jesus did? Yeah, that's what it says here. Because look at the next verse. The rest of that verse, it says, For he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, Let us therefore, why? Because we have a faithful high priest who understands our weaknesses. Therefore, because of who he is, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Not judgment. Not criticism. To a throne of grace. In the Old Testament, they couldn't come to a throne of grace. It was a throne of judgment. To a throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Mercies when you don't get what you should get. When you fail. We're to come to the throne of grace to get mercy for that failure, to find grace, which is the gift of God, to help in time of need. So God's saying when you're weak, when you've stumbled, when you've just said the thing you know you shouldn't have said, the devil's going to pounce on you with condemnation and say, what kind of Christian are you? Well, I'm a child of God. And I have the privileges of child of God that having slipped, I can come to the throne of grace and get that condemnation off of me because 1 John 1, 9 says, I can confess my sin. Then he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can come to a throne of grace when I'm struggling, when I'm weak, when I have failed. I c- He's your father. One thing I knew about my mother, there were some issues I have. One thing I knew about my mother, if I messed up, I knew I could go to her and tell her I'd messed up because I knew she'd still love me. And so when I messed up, I would go to her right away because I didn't want to live under that guilt and condemnation. You've got a father that loves you infinitely more. That's why he put Jesus in the position of high priest. To make up for your weaknesses. Paul says we're complete in him. Not in ourselves. We're complete in him. So we can venture out and not be afraid of failing because he's our father and he loves you. In his eyes we're little Johnny at the plate. Swinging at the ball, it's bouncing in the dirt sometimes. But you know what? He'll say, just keep swinging. See, with God, it's not three strikes and you're out. The way you learn to hit a baseball is the father just keeps tossing it to him. That's how I taught my kids. You just keep tossing them to him. No, no, you were swung a little late. Now swing again. We're going to do it again. I'm going to throw out a nice easy lob for you so that you can learn how to do this. And go- now if you're, if you're, if you're uh, you know, if you're starting on the starting lineup for the Red Sox or the Yankees, I'll give you equal, equal time. And, 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 you know, the coach is still like, come on, Johnny, you can hit it. Maybe you haven't grown. <laughs> but in most of the areas, we're still children, and God's tossing it to us. Come on, you missed it. That was a good try. Keep your eye on the ball now. Keep your eye. Come on. And pretty soon you're going to go, whack. And say, yeah, you did it. And it's now the confidence begins to rise. He's your father. He's your father. He's your father that loves you. He's standing on the sidelines cheering you and rooting you on. We're going to end here. Uh, the next thing I'm going to look at, and then we'll go into something else, is the biggest one. And I mentioned it before. It's the fear of death. We'll see how the Bible says in Hebrews 2, the fear of death is the source of all bondage for a Christian.
and we'll deal with the fear of death next week. Amen? Praise God. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. God loves you. God loves you. Say this with me. God loves me. Say it again. God, my Father, loves me. God loves you. He's a good, good father.